Welcome to Enduring Interest. I'm your host, Flag Taylor. I teach in the political science department at Skidmore College, and my writings have appeared in venues like the American Interest, Modern Age, National Review, and Law and Liberty. From the unjustly neglected to the often cited but seldom read, from the underappreciated to the just plain obscure, the Enduring Interest podcast aims to give important books and essays a wider audience. Some works will allow us to revisit permanent questions, while others might provide a unique or forgotten perspective on a very contemporary problem. We hope to educate and entertain and take listeners away from the pressure of the latest news cycle. Happy Thanksgiving from the Enduring Interest. We're pleased to bring you this bonus episode to celebrate. And Enduring Interest, we're in the midst of our second series of podcasts, having released a few weeks ago our episode with Catherine and Michael Zuckert on Leo Strauss's essays on liberal education. Forthcoming in our series on liberal education are episodes on Hannah Arendt, Eva Brand, and Michael Oakshot. Today's bonus episode is part of an occasional series on minor works by authors of the great books. We're discussing Soren Kierkegaard's Two Ages, and our guest is Matt Dynan. Matt is an associate professor in the Great Books program at St. Thomas University in Fredericton, New Brunswick, Canada. He does research on classical, Christian, and contemporary political philosophy, and is currently writing a book called Kierkegaard's Socratic Political Philosophy. His essays and reviews have appeared in Perspectives on Political Science and the Review of Politics. Matt is also a contributing writer to the Hedgehog Review. Matt and I first met because we both happen to be students of a wonderful professor called Mary Nichols, hopefully a future guest on this podcast. And this episode includes not one, but two Mary Nichols impressions. Welcome, Matt Dynan. It's great to have you on the Enduring Interest podcast uh, to talk about Kierkegaard. Thanks, Blake. Glad Glad to be here. Let's start. Why don't you give us a little bit of um, biographical background on on uh, our friend Soren here, who he was, when he lived, and some of the significant details of his life. Kierkegaard uh, had a kind of short uh, and in some ways very insular, but very dramatic life in, uh, in Copenhagen. He was born in 1813. And, uh, and died in 1855. So he didn't live to be uh, especially old. He was kind of a part of the, what the, what's known as the Danish golden age, um, where there was this kind of great flowering of, of Denmark as a commercial power, um, uh, an imperial power uh, to a certain extent, although you know, slavery gets abolished uh, kind of in Kierkegaard's lifetime. Uh, one of the first places uh, in continental Europe to uh, to ban it. Uh, Kierkegaard's parents were, uh, his father was a peasant who kind of ex- became a trader, became a merchant and uh, imported kind of luxury goods into Copenhagen. And uh, in that way uh, became quite wealthy. Kierkegaard had a, a kind of difficult childhood. His, um, well, in some ways, it's, 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 these things are always really complicated. You know, he, um, in some ways has some, seems to have had a kind of idyllic childhood in the sense that he was the youngest child and, and uh, really spoiled, it seems in some ways. He was super duper smart, very bright. And his father kind of delighted in the cleverness of his children and would play these kinds of dialectical games with them and and would say, you know, why do I don't have to leave my house to find the best conversation in Copenhagen? And so he had, on the one hand, he, as a, as a young boy, was kind of encouraged in his kind of bookishness. But on the other hand, he, you know, had a, you know, what we would call a lot of tragedy 
um, you know, all of his siblings, except for an older brother died, um, five or six of them in very short span of time. Uh, his mother and father both died. They had him when they were pretty old, so they didn't die exactly young. Like they were in their, his father was in his fifties when he was born, which was pretty old at that time. Um, so he lost his parents and most of his siblings. He had his famous and disastrous engagement with, uh, with Regina uh, Olson, who he married, or engaged to be married. He kind of successfully courted her, um, even though she was kind of above his social station in some ways. He successfully courts her, and they have this kind of brief and very passionate courtship. And, you know, you can, I, I was studying Danish uh, this summer, and I, I translated a bunch of Kierkegaard's love letters. They're really kind of beautiful and, and eloquent, uh, as you would expect. Uh, and they, they're always kind of signed, eternally yours, SK, which is, you know, a little... I guess the kids would say cringy now uh, <laughs> that we both, it's one of the most famous breakups in the history of philosophy, I guess, in some ways, but Kierkegaard has uh, some sort of private revelation. Um, he, we, we think that's, a, this is at least what seems to have come out in his letters and journals that he, he was not to kind of be married and to be happy in that way. Um, so he kind of breaks off the engagement with Regina and um, uh, tries to make himself seem, he kind of pulls a Hamlet. He tries to like quite self-consciously, he tries to make himself seem like a, like a cad to her. Um, but it doesn't, doesn't quite work. It's, it's kind of, you know, this weird situation. So, you know, he has this famously has this Rosewood cabinet built where he keeps copies of all of his books that he has printed on vellum. And, uh, and one, one for each one, he has one printed for Regina and one for, one for him. Um, and he keeps them in this, in this cabinet, which, you know, grows full because he was prodigiously, uh, productive. So, so Kierkegaard has this incredible, uh, period of productivity in his late twenties and early thirties where he produces, you know, um, three or four books a year in 1841, you know, he, he writes, repetition and the con concept of anxiety and cure and trembling. He makes notes for Johannes Climacus and kind of unpublished kind of novel about the synonymous author of his next two big books, um, which he also kind of finishes in the, in the following year. So he, he has this kind of uh, compulsion to write and the words just kind of come pouring out of him. He, uh, you know, were, he, his, were his books well received in his own lifetime? Well, it's kind of complicated. He, uh, or at least, I guess, at least well, well read. Um, did people, yeah. were, they, were they purchased in great volume or do we, do we know? Yeah. So again, it's, it's some of them sold very like relatively well. I mean, look, we're, we're talking about basically one city that spoke the language he wrote in. Right. So Kirkwood kind of makes the decision not to write in Latin or German. He's writing in in uh, Danish and is kind of acknowledged as one of the better, you know, prose stylists in Danish, which is, you know, kind of funny if you read him in, in English, it sometimes seems a little bit wordy and he does kind of funny things. But a lot of that has to do with the, the types of works we're more likely to read of his. 
Um, I think he wrote a lot of sermons and dis, you know, his Christian discourses, as he calls them. And those are, are really much more poetic than, uh, than some of the more theoretical works. But he, uh, yeah, like either or sold was made, was kind of sensational. You know, it has this, he's telling the, trying to like make this early distinction between what he calls the aesthetic life and the ethical life, kind of trying to reappropriate some categories from German idealism. And what the way that he does this is he creates this character who's either called A or the aesthete, who, you know, is really kind of a, a terrible guy. He tells a story about stalking this young girl and making himself kind of into the perfect, perfect seducer, the perfect lover for this, this young girl, just to kind of toy with her and maybe uh, even, you know, kind of take advantage of her sexually. And, um, and so like it was salacious and people didn't kind of get the fact, didn't get the the irony, right? Like didn't get the the idea that this was a bad guy on purpose and that the the kind of uh, choice being offered in either or, which was uh, seemed to be the kind of hedonistic life of in, in being interesting and, you know, kind of really loving art and seeking after pleasure and like kind of stuffy uh, bourgeois existence, on the other hand, with this, the second kind of character in either or, Judge William, like that these two, that Kierkegaard didn't really stand behind either of those two options. It's it's kind of almost, you know, poetically or, or poetically supposed to show us two ways that, um, although different, are, are not quite good human lives as far as Kierkegaard is convinced. So yeah, he was, he was really, he was notable for writing these, um, these kind of, uh, at first for, for the salacious content of some of what he wrote. But later on, he gets himself, uh, he, he picks fights with all of the, the main intellectual and literary leading lights in Denmark uh, and, and Germany, for that matter. He, uh, you know, had studied in Berlin. He, uh, after the, had, had spent time twice in Berlin uh, kind of studying German idealism. You know, this is after Hegel's dead. He uh, had attended lectures at the university in Berlin and um, was kind of, I'd say, um, with, what he, with, uh, with German idealism. But that made him sort of the exception in Denmark. Everybody who had been to university in Kierkegaard's day in, uh, who had gone to university in Denmark or in Germany had uh, was deeply under the spell of of German idealism and specifically of Hegel, um, and so there was a very prominent kind of slightly older contemporary of Kierkegaard named uh, Hans Lawson Martinson, um, who was you know got the kind of you know big job as the chair in theology at the University of Copenhagen where Kierkegaard had studied, gotten his magister's degree in theology. Martinson thought that he understood uh, Hegel. Um, better than kind of anybody else and and that he was ready to complete the system um, and to do so in the little town of of Copenhagen. Kierkegaard uh, then in a way, and this is I think a question, scholars kind of, there's been this tendency in the scholarship to say, oh yeah, well Kierkegaard had this kind of vendetta against Martinson who he was jealous of um, because he was not all that much older than Kierkegaard when he gets the best academic appointment in Denmark and Kierkegaard kind of saw him. He wrote a satirical play about him <laughs> called Villebald that, you know, the students in the theological college put on that has this, you know, kind of tasty, uh, wimpy professor, 
you know, making these huge claims about the significance of his own work to Christianity and world history and everything. And so it was well known that Kierkegaard didn't really particularly like Martinson. And so, but there's been this tendency, I think, in the scholarship for the last 20 years or so to say that, well, you know, he's really just concerned with this little, this kind of petty squabble in Copenhagen that ultimately he's trying to show up Martinson and show who the real kind of first rate mind is in a way. Um, and this leads people to say that while he's critical of Martinson, Kierkegaard is really, you know, kind of a Hegelian ultimately. And, and this I think is, is deeply mistaken. Not, and I mean, an early generation of scholars would, did not, you know, kind of took Kierkegaard at his word that he, you know, wasn't a Hegelian, but now it's like, oh, well, he's using all these categories from Hegel and they don't seem to, to take very seriously two things. First, that Kierkegaard, most of his main kind of theoretical books are written pseudonymously. They're, he creates these characters who write the books, um, much in the, in the same matter, uh, manner as, as Plato writes dialogues, which are prose plays meant to um, show us something uh, that's not simply, you know, a series of, of doctrines. Kierkegaard does the same thing, except he they're 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 frequently monologues, right? Or or rather, they're writers writing books, which is kind of Kierkegaard's own life. And so so first of all, they miss that, and I think second, they miss that Kierkegaard is not just engaging with Martinson; that he's actually kind of engaged in a kind of you know gigantomachia with Hegel himself, and with the kind of culmination of modern philosophy. Uh, you know, tracing its kind of roots all the way back to Descartes that Hegel understood himself to be completing. And so um, this is all by way of saying that Kierkegaard uh, in his day um, wrote these kind of obtuse, kind of difficult books with these strange kind of literary uh, flourishes that people didn't really uh, kind of get. <laughs> Not everybody at first knew that it was him <laughs> that was writing them since they'd be published under the pseudonyms. Some of them sold pretty well, others didn't. But he himself knew that he was playing in the big leagues. Um, even though he's writing for a day after Fear and Trembling, for instance, is, is uh, published, he writes in his journals that he knows it will be translated into every language human, human beings speak. Um, and that that book alone, he says, is going to be enough to to earn me immortal praise as an author, is what he says. Wow. That's yeah. pretty, so pretty he, prophetic, right? <laughs> it's it's incredibly prophetic because that, I mean, it's not a given, right? Like in a, in a number of ways. And, and it almost didn't happen. Like the, the reception history of Kierkegaard is, and, you know, we don't have to get too much into it. But basically, you know, there aren't English translations of Kierkegaard. Until until during the Second World War, basically Charles Williams, who's a weird kind of fantasy author, one of the Oxford Inklings, uh, Williams is working at Oxford University Press during the war, and basically when everyone's distracted during the war, he has kind of discovered some of these German translations of Kierkegaard, and he uh, he says he tra he commissions the translations, the first English translations uh, of Kierkegaard during the war when basically the bosses are out at OUP and no one's paying attention really to what's going on. So it's, if not like, so it's this really bizarre thing. Like, you know, everybody knew like Nietzsche kind of was like a brush fire through, through Europe and the Anglophone world. Um, but Kierkegaard's writing before him 
you know, covering some, you know, similar ground in some ways with a very different, with very different points of emphasis, even though a lot of the questions are kind of similar. So it's, uh, it's, it's a remarkable, it's remarkable to think that, uh, I, I forget the statistic on how many Danish speakers there are in Kierkegaard's day, but, you know, not that many, um, compared to how many people would know German or French or English. Sure. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's remarkable that we have him, and uh, it's even though he wasn't like a a big celebrity, he he was like lampooned. This was something that happened to him. He, uh, um, and maybe one of the why he's so hard on the newspapers. He um, he was pretty eccentric, <laughs> and it kind of cut a, a a kind of odd figure about Copenhagen, and and so he was he was uh, caricatured and uh, kind of mocked in a, a Danish uh, periodical called the Corsair, um, which he kind of publicly made fun of. But uh, we know from his journal, seemed it seemed to have bothered him actually. Right. Uh, well, he, yeah, he he got the last laugh, I would say. <laughs> I, yeah, I would say so. Look at the only reason anyone reads. I, I've I had the misfortune of reading the Martinson, and the only reason anyone reads it is is so they can understand Kierkegaard better. Right. <laughs> that, right. If that isn't the the kind of last laugh, I don't know uh, what is. So. Well, so you mentioned <laughs> you mentioned a couple of the major works that he's known for, either either or and fear and trembling. Uh, today we're going to talk about uh, one of his his minor works called Two Ages. At least that's the the English title. Mm -hmm. The subtitle is The Age of Revolution and the Present Age: A Literary Review. This is um, kind of a quirky little book that um, I don't know was was made known to me by by a lot of um, you know different people over the years who who um, have said um, if you if you're interested in um, in Tocqueville's evocation of Kind of some of the currents uh, of the age in the 19th century, and and Marx and and Nietzsche. There's this kind of minor little book by Kierkegaard you ought to read, and so that's how I came across it in in graduate school. So so maybe why don't you give us just a little bit about the context um, for this particular book? I mean, it's actually pretty short. It's it's more of an essay. It starts off as a kind of book review. So just talk about the original uh, context for for two ages. Yeah, thanks. So, um, so Kierkegaard writes this um, in 1846, um, and he's he's at a kind of odd, you know. Again, it's it's Kierkegaard is weird in the sense that you'd be hard pressed to find too many other writers whose like journals and papers we have as extensively. He he was uh, like a extraordinarily prolific journaler, um, and. Uh, it's unclear how much we could kind of trust his journals just as a, you know, I always feel like I need to say this because I think it's, it's important because his brother um, was his literary executor and hated him. And uh, there's some evidence to suggest that there was some kind of weird tampering with the journals. Um, so I never, you know, I, I, lots of scholars kind of turn to the journals as the kind of definitive thing is like, well, what did he really think behind the pseudonyms? It's, Having read a lot of them at this point, it, it seems clear to me that a lot of them are process writing. Like he's writing in character, he's trying out ideas, he's doing stuff. But at any rate, we do know sometimes the the entries are more prosaic. And he, <laughs> in 1846, he finishes concluding unscientific postscript to Philosophical Fragments, which is quite a quite a <laughs> a, a mouthful. But um, probably, I think 
Kierkegaard's most important book in some ways is the kind of com the, the combination of philosophical fragments and 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 postscript, which are by the pseudonymous author Johannes Climacus, and, and they're really dense. It, they're they take on you know the very small question of which is a better way of knowing the truth, Christ or Socrates, right? Like that's kind of the the choice that this book lays out over you know the. Fragments is pretty condensed. It's like 120 pages or something. <laughs> and then Postscript is about 400 pages long. They don't even put the notes in the kind of current Princeton edition of it. It's so big. So um, so he finishes this book and he's got all his pseudonyms out there and he understands it to be a kind of complete oeuvre, which he calls the authorship. And he's like, okay, that's it. I'm done. I'm not going to write anymore. I uh, I think I'm going to call it quits. I'm going to, and he keeps, I, I don't know if you have some, something like this in your life uh, flag, but Kierkegaard's kind of like dream thing that he always says he's going to do that he never gets around to doing. He says, oh, I'm going to retire and I'm going to be a, a pastor in a rural parish in Lapland or something like this, you know, way out there. Uh, I'm going to go and be a rural pastor and just kind of, you know, simply tend to the needs of the people and uh, serve the church and, and so on and so forth. Anyway, he never does it. I, I think everybody's got a, a plan B. And so he's having one of these plan B weeks, basically, where he's like, I don't want to be a writer anymore. Um, but then he's like, well, I can't really help myself. So I know what I'll do. I'll write reviews. <laughs> so This is another thing. If you're a writer, you know, I, I, I kind of get this way too. It's so much easier to write a review of, a, of someone else's book than to work on my own. So I, I got to stop signing up for book reviews. But anyway, Kierkegaard, Kierkegaard decides he wants to review this, uh, this, this novel, this, the most famous novel in, in Denmark in his day. So he sets out to do it and then kind of accidentally writes a book. This is, this is the sort of thing that, that a kind of writer of Kierkegaard's genius kind of ends up doing. So he reviews that that you know this novel had been serialized over over many years and it was uh published anonymously kind of originally it was called a story of everyday life and eventually it was kind of published as it was called two ages when it was kind of put together in these different volumes it was by a, a, a writer that we now know is uh thomasina gillenborg who you know, wrote a number of books. And, and you know, after, after the kind of runaway success of, of this story of everyday life, ends up uh, kind of publishing, you know, her other books as the anonymous author of the story of everyday life. So um, the novel is, uh, have started reading it, I will confess, I didn't finish it. Um, but it's kind of something like the, uh, Kind of something like War and Peace meets Middlemarch, I think, uh, would be a way to think about it, kind of, but the Danish version and um, was extraordinarily popular in uh, uh, in Denmark. Uh, it was kind of the book that, you know, as, as Kierkegaard says in Two Ages, um, it is the book that everybody, man and woman, has read in, uh, in Copenhagen. So, uh, so he's reviewing this book. Yeah, he spends about, and by my count of this, the Princeton edition is about 120 pages. I think about 35 pages are spent on the actual novel. So just to give, <laughs> just to give uh, listeners a sense that this, he, he definitely uses the novel to to do his own thing. Yeah, it's it's kind of it's. I mean, it's kind of interesting, right? It's the novel is is captures the period in time uh, from the transition 
from the like late 18th century and the and the revolutionary age the french revolution and the kind of the you know hegel of course calls it the the march of the world spirit that uh, happened <laughs> you know with napoleon across europe at the end of the uh, uh 18th and beginning of the 19th century and this kind of transition that occurred from the, that time to the more bourgeois 1820s uh, and 1830s where um, things have really calmed down to a remarkable degree. And, you know, some of this kind of revolutionary foment does make it to Denmark. There are these, um, there are reforms, you know, it becomes sort of a constitutional monarchy. Um, there are uh, attempts to, uh, these kind of socialist attempts to overthrow the, uh, the Danish monarchy. We, we know that Kierkegaard is basically like unimpressed by all sides and all these sorts of, <laughs> you know, he, he was, you know, not exactly a monarchist, but not exactly not one either. You know, he, uh, he, he just couldn't bring himself to, to kind of pick a side. He found them both kind of equally obnoxious. So, but the book kind of talks about, it, re it reflects on a series of, 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 of like what social life is like, what life is like for regular people, especially women in this revolutionary age, in the, the area, the era of the uh, French Revolution, Napoleonic Wars, and then whatever comes after <laughs> the kind of return to normal life where people are concerned with, um, with making money and, and living their um, kind of regular uh, kind of bourgeois existence after that. So um, it it spans these two ages and offers this, uh, as Kierkegaard points out, this very subtle comparison um, and diagnosis of what the ages are like. Right. Um, and then that's a good transition. Um, in Once we leave the details of the novel, then he immediately launches into um, this explicit contrast between the, the two ages. So as, as you've described it, the the age of revolution is is ending kind of with with Napoleon maybe, and then we're transitioning into something um, new, I guess newish. But by the time um, Kierkegaard is writing, maybe it's been going on for a couple decades that he just calls the present the present age versus the revolutionary age. And so the 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 book is is a kind of um, I guess I would call it kind of social philosophic social criticism some, something like this and and you know trying to get at the the transformations that he sees occurring around him and the extent to which it's I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves but um, so, whether the social trends are are healthy or, or not um, may, maybe the place to begin is just can, can you just give give listeners a, um, a, a kind of initial contrast between the age of revolution and the and the present age. What are the um, what are the, what are a few of the the contrasts that Kierkegaard emphasizes? Yeah. So the basic contrast that Kierkegaard establishes between the revolutionary age and the age of revolution and the present age is between passion, on the one hand, and reflection on the other. So he has this kind of mantra he repeats over and over again at the beginning of every paragraph when he gets into the the Surin part of the book, you know, when he kind of leaves <laughs> leaves the novel behind, kind of uses it as his jumping off point. Uh, I think it's it's kind of funny. This is a there was a a, a little controversy about criticism online and in, uh, in some kind of literary journals this summer, and they're like, to what extent should you really 
you know, use a book review to talk about other stuff? Shouldn't you really just talk about the book? And anyway, if people are doing that now, and I, I'll admit I'm maybe guilty of this sometimes, but uh, but Kierkegaard at least did it too. Yeah. <laughs> so it's an old it's an old uh, inclination. But yeah, the, the basic distinction is between passion um, and reflection. And and so Kierkegaard kind of tries to ask, well, okay, what does it mean for kind of our collective life and for my life as a as an individual human being trying to live a good life? What does it mean to be to kind of exist within the context of these different ages? And so he uh, he sketches out maybe like I think maybe some of the surprising uh, implications of both um, the emphasis on, or the, not the emphasis on, but the, the fostering of passion or the expression of passion that comes from an age of revolution, the emphasis on reflection that comes uh, from uh, an age of uh, a kind of bourgeois age, what he just calls the present age. It's kind of interesting. He doesn't even really give it a name which I think is is actually really apt and important in a way. Right. What, so what, uh, you could say what what Marx, you know, calls capitalism or the bourgeois era and Tocqueville would just call democracy. Yeah. Kierkegaard just says this is what's happening now. <laughs> Present. <laughs> well, well, yeah, I think it's I, it's really interesting. And I think it might even be like a you know, I mean, what what do you call it? Right. <laughs> like It's people like to say talk about you know neoliberalism or post-modernity or you know let some people on the left call it late capitalism i don't know whatever you want to call it i think it's better to leave it unnamed actually if it is what you say it is then um it's going to be resistant to uh, reification along those lines in some ways and, and then and, and so, then one sorry. one uh, one uh, one just an additional kind of question to to add to the contrast between passion and reflection, he also emphasizes that by leaving passion behind, the present age also has trouble with, with action. Mm-hmm. And so just a couple funny passages, he, he, he says, the present age is essentially a sensible reflecting age, devoid of passion, flaring up in superficial, short-lived enthusiasm, and prudentially relaxing in indolence. Uh, and then in the next uh, in the next page, he says, exhausted by its chimerical exertions, the present age then relaxes temporarily in complete indolence. Its condition is like that of the stay abed in the morning who has big dreams, then torpor, <laughs> followed by a witty or ingenious inspiration to ex- um, to excuse staying in bed. Uh, and so may- maybe you could say something about the the connection between lack of passion and indolence or or inaction yeah we might look at you know the distinction like look revolutionary passions are frightening right we might we might look at the distinction and think well Kierkegaard is is a christian writer he's going to be critical of passion and probably on the side and he's a philosopher he's probably on the side of reflection but that's not really how it shakes out he he thinks that you know and and i'd want to be a little bit i guess careful here because he's trying to diagnose what the ages are like with a view toward kind of asking, well, okay, what does a good human life kind of look like in either one of these ages? And so I think Kierkegaard is always very aware of his audience, of the types of human beings he's writing towards. And in this way, he's very much like Tocqueville, I'd say. So he's he's trying to emphasize the passionate character of 
the of the revolutionary age not the fact that everybody was killing each other you know um, like if, this might be news you know to if you if you think about the conflicts uh leading up to the french revolution you, you know you tell spinoza about uh, uh about the revolutionary age and the reflective age and he might say i'm taking the reflective age you know nine times out of ten or ten times out of ten right and so i think that kierkegaard is making you know, maybe a kind of counterintuitive defense of passion draws out how, like, to be passionate is to give form to things, which I think is really interesting. Passion doesn't just mean, you know, your emotions for Kierkegaard. It's much closer, the, the, the word that he uses, and he uses it some in, in uh, Danish, he uses it sometimes interchangeably with um, uh, the Greek term eros. Right. He uh, think about it as the basic motivations which give shape to human lives. Um, and so in this interesting way, you know, we we say that someone is passionate. We might say, well, you know, they're always kind of messing things up. They're rushing in and, you know, not thinking, <laughs> breaking things, you know. And we might say, well, someone re who's reflective doesn't do that. Maybe they're the ones who give shape to things. But Kierkegaard, uh, I think, throughout the pseudonymous writings and, and in this text as well, views passion as that which gives shape to human lives. You couldn't, for instance, be religious. You couldn't be a Christian for Kierkegaard unless uh, you were passionate, right? Unless you were able to kind of fully commit to that way of life. And so um, in this really interesting way, he, and I think here we have an interesting kind of point of contact with Tocqueville, is he says that passion, uh, the revolutionary age gives is an age of forms. Right. It, so we might think about, you know, you read Tocqueville and he talks about how in the democratic age, we lose a respect for, for forms, right, for formality, as we call it, for um, using people's titles, for uh, the type of pageantry we associate with with the aristocracy. The Kierkegaard is kind of interesting because he says, well, in a revolutionary age, you have passion uh, to give things forms. So sure, you don't have, you know, you might not have aristocratic forms, but you have Republican ones. Um, people have are interested in creating things and giving shape to lives, and Kierkegaard, you know, suggests that uh, a reflective age is an age where people like to think about things more than they like to do things, where they're more likely to, you know, endlessly uh, consider what to do rather than actually deliberating and and acting. So you can think about, you know, think about the average amount of. Uh, <laughs> of uh, reflection that goes into reflection and, and maybe research that someone does when they're going to buy like a new car or something. I don't know, maybe not everybody is like this, but there are whole websites you could go on that like help help you make your consumer choices as rationally as possible. But, oh yeah, you know. I have friends who who make uh, you know charts of different different options if they're buying a dishwasher, for example. That's you know what that was going to be my example because I you know I went through I think four dishwashers in the last five years and so finally before you know we we kept buying dishwashers on sale and I said to my wife okay we have to research and so we did the research we we bought a really nice dishwasher I'll tell you but uh, this time through uh, maybe we can get sponsored um, uh, by go. the by the Bosch dishwasher <laughs> company which is make truly spectacular dishwashers but. You know, Kierkegaard would say, like, our tendency to, like, worry about the dishwasher um, is not prudence. It doesn't show how thoughtful we are. It shows that we really don't care about anything. Um, because if you could spend a lot of time worrying about your dishwasher, right, 
um, then you're not really kind of uh, paying much attention to the task of becoming a self or, you know, living a fully human life as a, you know, as a philosopher or statesman or, uh, or a saint. And so, yeah, yeah. So yeah, is it sorry. fair to, is it fair to say then that he, if, if you think about the contrast between passion and reflection, um, he's not, he's not talking about reflection, theological reflection, you know, how do I live a more Christian life or even philosophical re- reflection, you know, what, what is a good life, you know, all of the, the kinds of reflection that he's doing, he thinks would, would you say that he thinks that would fall outside the scope of the kind of reflection that he thinks is dominating this this present age so it's it's more calculation um a kind of narrow narrowing of of reason yeah a narrowing of reason but also an emphasis on um on considering things in the abstract rather than uh than in their concretion so right so so kierkegaard is is concerned not just with calculation as we might put it, thinking about what kind of dishwasher to get and um, and this kind of narrowing. But while there's a narrowing of concern and this kind of cautiousness, uh, becoming what Rousseau calls a bourgeois nothing, right? Um, there's also this tendency to um, to abstract one's life, right? To say, well, you know, maybe in the past I could become um, kind of great. Greatness was possible to people in the past to, to a certain extent, uh, but those times are over, right? That, that's one way of thinking about it. Uh, the other way is to think about oneself in kind of completely abstract terms. Um, Kierkegaard says that people love m- making money, not because they're particularly materialistic, but because they like that money uh, gives them so many possibilities that it's so abstract. When I've got money, I've got, um, I have this, this abstract possibility that could become anything. And yet um, I'm not maybe even, maybe there's not even a particular dishwasher I'm saving for, right? Uh, maybe I, I just want to be able to buy the best one when it comes out. Um, and so he, he suggests that uh, reflection and reflection for Kierkegaard in Danish is a different word than what he uses for thinking. Reflection is this this tendency to kind of turn everything in on oneself dialectically, and in a strange way, you know, we're, we're going to talk about uh, he he talks about inwardness a lot. But when I'm always reflecting the world and my experience in on myself, when I'm always filtering it through my subjectivity then I'm really not being truly inward nor truly outward, <laughs> right? I'm not going out and acting in the world. I'm thinking about acting in the world or I'm thinking about how I might act. And for that reason, um, uh, Kierkegaard locates within the reflective age, neither true thought nor true action. It's a little bit like um, what Hannah Arendt will call the social, which is this kind of space that gobbles up the 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 uh, political realm and the uh, or the public realm and the private realm and kind of smooshes them together into this uh, pursuit of the biological of you know satisfying the needs of the biological life process where you're basically just a consumer you're not a citizen and you're not really uh, a kind of private individual either um, and so Kierkegaard and I think Arendt actually knew this essay so uh, she was quite you know I think influenced by Kierkegaard here um, but at any rate. 
uh, yeah, the, the reflective age is, it would be wrong to, to, to say that it's more about, uh, that it's more intellectual, that it's more about actual thinking. Um, it's, he says, you know, this age doesn't even have the ambition of the encyclopedists, you know, like there's no Diderot trying to summarize all human knowledge. We're not even Hegel. We're the people who try to write about Hegel. Um, you know, the professors always, you know, come in for it pretty rough in, in Kierkegaard. And, uh, you know, as, as, since we're both professors, I, I, you know, I just take the lump. I'm like, yeah, guilty, you know, <laughs> that's right. Um, maybe we can transition to from from what you've described as as or or what you've said about reflection. I think your your last um, point was was really enlightening. It helps me understand um, the essay a lot a lot better than I did when uh, when I first when I first read it. Maybe we can transition to to re from reflection to what he says about the the character of human relationships because he, he describes the present age, um, he emphasizes how the present age not only affects, you know, people's minds and hearts, but also how they relate to, to one another. And so there's a particular passage on page 80 that I thought was really interesting. Uh, he, he writes, gone are the fervor, enthusiasm, and inwardness that make the links of dependency and the crown of rule light, that make the child's obedience and the father's authority happy, that make the deference of admiration and the elevation of distinction, frank and cheerful, that give the teacher valid significance and thus give the pupil opportunity to learn that, that unite the frailty of the woman and the strength of the man and the equal intensity of devotedness. The relation does still remain, but it lacks the resilience to concentrate itself in inwardness so as to be united harmoniously. The relations do manifest themselves as present and yet is absent, but not completely, rather in a sort of slouching, semi-somnolent non-cessation. <laughs> that must have been <laughs> tough to translate. Um, so I, I was struck in that, in, in that passage by the, he, he seems to be emphasizing how the present age hollows out relationships, that it results in a kind of formlessness. It kind of reminded me of, uh, in a way, of uh, the description of, of democracy and what is it, book eight of, of the Republic, um, something like that. So, so maybe just talk about the, what he says about how human relationships are, are transformed in, in this time. Yeah, he's got this great line um, a little bit before that wonderful passage you uh, wrote. He says, you know, what ends up happening is that we stop being specific persons living specific lives. And he says, it finally ends up with the whole age becoming a committee. Um, and, and so if anyone's ever been on a committee, um, it truly is the lowest and, and, you know, most putrid form of human association. It's like what, <laughs> what are we even doing here? Who's in charge? And, and what, what's our, what's our mandate? What are the terms of reference? We don't, anyway, it's, oh, yeah. uh, so <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, he's, I think that the interesting thing for Kierkegaard, for Kierkegaard is this, that if we stop understanding our, if we understand ourselves as kind of um, expressions of the spirit of the age, right? Uh, as trapped, maybe, you know, one way to think about it is if we're trapped by a system, you know, you, you kind of get this, uh, these kind of intellectual analyses of, 
um, of human life that I, I think really, you know, are basically Hegelian. Like, I don't think that they ever truly kind of escape the imminence of Hegelian dialectics. Things like, you know, like Foucault, who want to reduce all human interactions to these nodes of power where everything is, you know, this discourse generated by power, which generates, you know, uh, uh, which generates uh, different kind of nodes and these networks and, and this sort of thing where no, not, no one is anything. No one rules and no one is ruled anymore. People aren't exactly citizens and they're not exactly uh, not citizens either. Um, we end up in as these kind of indefinite beings. Kierkegaard says, I think this is the thing that makes this essay really unique in this genre of the kind of, you know, incipient postmodern lament, <laughs> right? Is that uh, passion, right? Living for something, being able to say, I am a Christian or being able to say with Socrates that the unexamined life is not worth living, right? Which may or may not be true, <laughs> right? Or uh, being able to uh, really understand one's life as shaped by a kind of uh, a purpose that is not something that you make, right? But something that you take on, I think, something that you can become um, and then really be. That's not just an assertion of your uh, of your will. Um, that, that, that comes in a strange way, like that you lose that passion, losing a sense of yourself as a concrete individual being who may or may not have a specific destiny, right? And so, the loss of form accompanies the loss of passion, not because people are, um, well, I, I guess we might think about it this way. We might, you think about the kind of democratic mob that Tocqueville describes that might uh, be impatient with formality, mm -hmm. right? Which might see everyone as equal. And, and you might think, well, it's a kind of unthinkingness. It's a, you know, Tocqueville goes on at great lengths about how Americans are kind of, uh, and democratic people are allergic to philosophy <laughs> or allergic to certain types of thinking. Although we got to kind of bracket it because he also says they're Cartesians, um, natural Cartesians. We've never read Descartes. It's easy to see how this kind of anti-intellectual kind of strain of modern life might lead to formlessness. It's more difficult to see how the intellectualization of human life might lead to it. And I think that's what he what he tries to show here, that when I'm kind of constantly trying to figure out, understand myself as an expression of history or of power relations, that I can never get around to actually living because I can't take on an, uh, uh, a kind of uh, a way of life, right? What we might call, you know, we're, we're shaped by these identities we say nowadays, right? Um, and we want our identities to be recognized by the state and so on. Um, fine, I guess. But for Kierkegaard, that's not the same as a, a kind of passionate task that gives you genuine inwardness. So there's a difference between thinking about myself as, you know, um, as like a brand, right? I'm a, here are the things, you know, this is what you have to do if you want to get a job. You have to be able to market yourself and here are my skills, and th these are my deliverables, and here are my big achievements, and my superlatives, and yada, yada, yada. That's not actually being those things. That's reflecting those qualities and applying them to yourself and projecting an image of yourself into the world. And so Kierkegaard wants us, instead of constantly mediating our existence, trying to, to uh, live in such a way that 
I'm, I'm like fashioning myself intellectually with a view toward movements in the culture of the age. He, he wants us to lose ourselves in becoming ourselves, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's very good. And then that, that's a good connection, especially your, your um, kind of anecdote anecdotal explanation with uh, kind of the resume building, you know, bullet point features of, of what I am, who I am. To me, that that helped me make sense of why he says that uh, envy is the unifying principle of, of a passionless and reflective age. And so maybe just talk about what he what he says about what he says about envy, why that why that becomes so um, predominant. Yeah, if the basic move is not thinking but reflection, I'm always comparing things dialectically. I'm always reacting to categories, to abstractions, to events, and I'm never actually kind of, you know, uh, actually making a decision that kind of flows from my from my character, from what's from true inwardness. So, um, so envy then is um, for. Uh, for Kierkegaard, a uh, uh, kind of consequence of reflection in the same way that it sort of is for, for Nietzsche, I think. It's not completely unlike the way that in the, in, on the genealogy of morals, Nietzsche describes the, the, growth, the growth of uh, ressentiment, of, uh, mm-hmm. this, of thinking as differentiating self, as, as being tied to differentiating self and other. And thus, it's in a way to to constantly be reflecting is to be always re- comparing oneself to somebody else. And so, so he talks about the way that reflection is the envy of the intellect in the sense that it doesn't put forward propositions. It doesn't truly weigh things dialectically. It, re- it reacts and responds in a way that it keeps you from ever deciding. Uh, not, I think, an accident that, uh, you know, our students will talk about this paralyzing, you know, fear of, missing out or FOMO, right? And, um, and, and there's something about being aware of the various possibilities um, that are kind of out there for people that uh, creates this, you know, he says it's, it's, um, uh, it's like building a, a kind of prison or a penitentiary for the will to make it impossible to actually assert what you really want because um, you understand it in relationship to others. Um, and so, you know, for Kierkegaard wouldn't deny, and in fact, you know, one of his pseudonyms, Anticlimacus, talks about the human being as basically relational, right? That um, we are relational, but we can't allow what we are, our inwardness, to be established by any relationship except our relationship to God. Um, because that's the only relationship that gives, um, that establishes who you are without wanting anything back, um, and that can give meaning to that can give a kind of ultimate and stable meaning to uh, the various kind of endeavors that a human being can undertake. And so Kierkegaard is, he, I, I was a little surprised rereading this. I've been reading some of the pseudonymous works and he comes right out and says that only religious inwardness can uh, break through the falseness of these relations. So it might not be wrong to think about um, this kind of resentment or envy as a form of pride, I think, in a, in a Christian sense. And so it's kind of interesting because it it's one of those moments where uh, I think a little bit surprisingly, this otherwise kind of detached reflection kind of says, yeah, like the, the answer to this problem is not, is you can't stop being relational, right? That 
you have to uh, find a better way of relating to another being that uh, will break you out of this uh, uh, this problem of envy. You know, envy, I think, is the only one of the vices that doesn't really will some actual good for someone else, <laughs> right? Envy, and with envy, it's just I don't want you to have that. <laughs> it's it's and and in a sense, you can see how for speculative philosophy, this is such a an important idea, right? Like the mechanics of self-consciousness for Hegel are rooted in lordship and bondage or master and slavery. And, and you can't ever escape this desire for recognition, which, you know, Kierkegaard, I think here says, yeah, it's, a, it's basically saying that we're envious in this kind of reflective way. And so I think there, you know, there probably is a form of thinking that's not like that for him. But in our, in our age, I think he, he sees this as a real, um, uh, as a real problem and a, that will that creates other problems right because he says that you know envy leads to this sort of uh of leveling this kind of abasement of human possibility uh, because we stop you know attempting to to strive for anything or to to live a passionate existence we kind of don't want other people <laughs> to to do it, but we don't really want it for ourselves either. And we want to kind of think about it. And so if you think about, you know, I think it's really easy to do, you know, Kierkegaard talks about how the media, the public and the and the press are the two bad P words in a way um, in this, uh, at the end of this essay. And, you know, these things are kind of super concentrated in social media for us in, in a way, right? It's very easy to live a completely envious life where you know, even the things that you post are designed to be, oh, look at this new thing I published or look at this, you know, vacation I went on or look at, you know, how buff I'm getting at the gym or right. you know, look at how fast my half new, marathon is. Yeah, new profile pic. New <laughs> profile pic or, or um, gym progress or here's, you know, look at how clever my quip is, right? It's amazing. Actually, all these things actually seem to, to be the product of what Kierkegaard says will happen in a reflective age where um, where reflection takes the place of action. I want to, well, you've just in, kind of invoked our age of social media, and, and I want to get back to, um, you know, asking the important question of the relevance of, of uh, two ages to our own age, and does what Kierkegaard say about what he calls the present age still apply to us um, net, does that apply to us now? But but maybe the the last kind of concept I want to um, ask you about, maybe before we, we before we move to that that question, is is the one you just mentioned. Uh, he emphasizes the importance of of leveling, the abstraction of leveling, and so say say a few see few words about what he means by that. Uh, it's it seems like uh, he he might he might mean what what you could also call uniformity you know there's there's no there aren't there's no willingness to acknowledge kind of i guess difference there's no willing to acknowledge uh, i guess what i would call greatness so yeah just just say a little bit about what what he means by by leveling and and why that becomes such a important feature of of this age yeah, it's it's really kind of interesting because he roots it fundamentally in uh, in envy, and so you know we the the kind of two um, other you know great theorists of of leveling before and you know kind of contemporaneous with a little bit before Kierkegaard, Tocqueville, and and then Nietzsche um, kind of talk about this one too, 
And I think what's interesting about it is that um, uh, he says a reflective age does the opposite of the of the revolutionary age. It stifles and impedes, and it thereby levels. And that I think is a is is quite is kind of an interesting um, way of thinking about it because it's both. He's giving us both a kind of social ontology we might call it, uh, as well as a, a kind of depth psychology of what it's like to live in an age like this. And so it's not so much. I think Kierkegaard sees certain possibilities. We have to kind of talk about, you know, what's the the so what here? Like Kierkegaard kind of comes out and says, like, a certain kind of greatness is really not accessible to us uh, in this age, which, you know, as a Christian, he he understands greatness to maybe have a different kind of cadence or different or to offer different possibilities, perhaps, or to be expressed different ways. Yeah, the I think the fundamental way in which leveling happens is that it keeps us from living fully human lives, right? We rather than being able to uh, figure out that one wants to be uh, to to love wisdom or to love God or to to love really love even my family, um, we live this kind of abstract existence as a member of the public, which Kierkegaard, Kierkegaard, by the way, says doesn't exist, right? It is the greatest abstraction of all, this idea that there could be a thing called the public, which has desires and wants things, which I think is basically true, right? Like the, the public wants this and the public wants that. And it's like, no, this is obvious. It's obviously an abstraction. And it's- Yeah, it reminded kind me of, kind of when the, uh, you'll, you'll hear politicians say, you know, this- the American people won't stand for that, or, <laughs> you know, the French nation won't do X. It's sort of that similar level of abstraction right. that makes you kind of cringe and be like, well, can you, can you really speak on behalf of that whole, whole groups in such an um, uncomplicated way? Or, or when, when right. people say um, the international community won't stand for X, that's sort of the, the abstraction of all abstractions. <laughs> I think you can't, yeah. can't get much bigger. <laughs> Yeah, and I think, and I think, like, like for Kierkegaard, the danger is that people will start believing it, right? That um, that they'll believe that they are a member of the public, um, that I am, uh, that that's that's kind of all I am. The individuals in the crowd, he says, will consider um, nothing permissible at all, right? He says the great personages in the revolutionary ages consider everything permissible, which is obviously also not true. But in a democratic age, uh, or in a in the present age, he says we we say that that nothing is possible at all. Um, and he talks about he uses this image of uh, of a of an icy lake, which as a as a Canadian, uh, you know, really resonated uh, with me. And uh, and he says, you know, in revolutionary ages where people are passionate, people will dare to walk where the ice is thin, and people on the on the shore will applaud their bravery he says um, he says but in the uh, in the present age in the age of reflection it's like people won't leave the thick ice they'll call people who do crazy but then he says they'll find the most expert skaters they can and the expert skaters will not actually leave the safe part um, they'll stay you know in the uh, in the the thick ice close to the shore and then, and then everybody will congratulate themselves for how good their expert skaters are. And I, and I think like that um, that's a, a really good way to understand the kind of leveling, right? That it's 
it's that it doesn't even occur to people that there are possibilities. It's not like, so one way to think about it is this, right? Um, and this is maybe, maybe I shouldn't even say this, but you know, having said that, I'm going to go ahead and say it. <laughs> you got to you know, do it now. <laughs> um, I got to do it now. You know, philosophy professors love to call themselves philosophers, right? They, they kind of take the mantle and they say, oh, well, philosophers always, you know, argue in this way or, you know, attention philosophers, what do you think about this? And, um, you know, it never occurs to them that being a graduate student in philosophy or somebody who's maybe, you know, read uh, a little bit of Carnap or Frege doesn't actually make you a philosopher, a lover of wisdom. And Kierkegaard actually makes this the subject of one of his books of, of Johannes Climacus, about a young boy who really loves thinking and he goes to the university and uh, and he finds out that, you know, modern philosophy begins with 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 doubting everything. And uh, he says he looked around and he says, well, everyone I see, it doesn't look like they've doubted everything. They look pretty normal to me. Um, he's like, but because there's they say that modern philosophy begins in doubt and they all call themselves philosophers, they must have done it. So he tries to do it. Um, and as soon as he tries to do it, he faints because he, he realizes how crazy an idea it is doubt everything like like what would it actually mean to do this and and so i think i think kierkegaard um you know in, in this way right we say oh well you're a philosopher if you take a few graduate courses in philosophy or um you know if you're a philosophy professor but i'm sorry but that doesn't necessarily mean that you love wisdom right is that your primary affiliation or do you really care about making money or you know being clever in a very specific sort of way or being famous somehow right like and, and Kierkegaard's point about leveling is this, right? These people are excellent at making specific technical arguments, right? But that's not, that's not skating to the deepest part of the pond, right? So we watch someone make these, these fantastic arguments, show how smart they are, right? Scholars of Kierkegaard, look at how good your Danish is. You've read all of Hegel. Um, what a clever argument. And here I'm kind of skewering myself, right? But you're not the person writing the books in the first place. Right. And we, we applaud this and say, oh, this is brilliant. We don't even know what uh, being a philosopher would be anymore. Even worse, we don't know that we don't know that. And so and so for Kierkegaard, the, again, it's not an issue of of knowledge per, exactly, because even a mediocrity like me can say all these things without being able to actually do them. And so it's this again, this distinction between between passion and uh, and reflection that uh, leads to a kind of of leveling right. and a, and, a, and, a, and a closure of certain human possibilities. Yeah, that's very nice. Uh, so maybe let's let's now go back to the to the question that we we started to answer. I mean, you've already given some evidence to suggest uh, that that what Kierkegaard is describing about you know his own his own age also applies um, to our age in the 21st century. So do you want to say a bit a bit more about the extent to which Kierkegaard's uh, diagnosis um, back then applies to, to us today? Yeah, I mean, again, I, I, it's, I, I, I think I, I, in rereading this uh, essay today to, uh, to discuss this with you, I was really struck by the ending where he he talks about, you know, for instance, he, he says, what is philandering? <laughs> he said, it is the annulled passionate distinction between essentially loving and, and being essentially debauched. 
right? There's this, uh, and you know, of course, the maybe the, one of the greatest 20th century readers of um, of Kierkegaard is the novelist Walker Percy, who um, has actually uses that line, right? In or, or uses a version of that line in the moviegoer, um, where uh, when Biggs and Kate are on the train, mm. uh, they try to, you know, he's. <laughs> He says, you know, could you, Binks is reflecting on them them having sex. And he says, you know, could you call it adultery? <laughs> right. It's like, couldn't even really go through with it. Right. Like, <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's this sort of annulled passion, right. Um, this thwarted passion. The, the thing that happens is that you lose a sense of what the actual kind of distinctions are in human life. He says we lose the principle. He says we lose the principle of non-contradiction, which I think is, you know, uh, again, uh, that's a hilarious kind of, low-key critique of Hegel, whose great, you know, uh, whose great kind of feed in the logic is showing why Aristotle's wrong about the principle of non-contradiction ultimately, right? Um, and he says, but look, existentially or, or you know, in, a, in lived human experience, right, the, the forms, the distinctions between objectivity and subjectivity, between form and content, between speech and silence, all these distinctions truly matter for getting shaped to a human life. And um, we've replaced, interestingly, in thinking about them so much, right, in this reflective way, we've replaced these fundamental human alternatives, right, from passionate shapes to human life, to the kind of basic categories we need to give some sort of order to experience, right? We've lost it all and kind of smushed it all together. And so I think like one of the the real dangers um, of social media, maybe, and I know, and you know, I'm a prolific tweeter. I, I uh, especially kind of during the pandemic, this has become a real vice of mine. So I'm speaking, you know, from a profound, you know, sense of like self-accusation here, guilty conscience. But like it's it's very possible to um, to observe one's life right in a reflective way and at the same time to reflect your life onto these media in a way that i think is completely consistent with what kierkegaard says we might do right and i think and i think he would be at once kind of shocked and horrified but also you know on the other hand completely unsurprised but the other thing i'll say is that for kierkegaard like because the task is always couched as one of inwardness, right? Like this reflective age also offers a cut into uh, or offers the, the promise of something better, right? That um, if I spend all this time, like my vices are not the vices of the revolutionary age if, I'm, if I live in the present age, right? Like I'm less likely to decapitate somebody. People like to, to jokingly, you know, post pictures of guillotines or whatever online, but you know, it's not happening all that much, right? Right. And if Kierkegaard were writing, then he would write about those vices, right? Like, I think that's that. I think is yeah. is part of what needs to be understood. It's not just, you know, I think people read this and they're like, Kierkegaard's a vitalist. He's a Schmidian. He says you need to, you know, make just make a decision and be resolute, right? This is Kierkegaard's. If there are any kind of nerds listening. Kierkegaard's idea of passion is a little bit like what Heidegger will call resoluteness or resolution. And so there's, I think there's a, you know, I think he's attempting to, in a Socratic way, 
speak to um, the culture that you know he inhabited, which I think has, in certain key respects, is our culture or is similar to our culture, right? Um, or well, our life world. Or whatever. Well, your and your earlier point about the the fact that uh, the the word for for thinking is is different. That reflection is a different word. I mean that that I think helps. Um, you know, explain what what he's what he's trying to get at in a in a way that wouldn't allow you to uh, to be convinced that he was a a, a Schmidian because yeah there is a there is a kind of way that you could read it that way but I it seems it seems pretty clear that that's that's certainly not what he wants to what he wants to say ultimately um, yeah for... and and ultimately you know the other thing too sorry to, to interrupt your flag but he is recommending this very gentle novel of inwardness, right? And, and I kind of mentioned Walker Percy along those lines, right? Like the task of being a self, you know, needs to be recovered, right? So part of the way that I understand Kierkegaard to be Socratic is, is in this way, that Socrates, Plato's Socrates seems to be concerned with, uner- with uncovering, unearthing, recovering, recollecting these kind of basic alternatives in thought and speech and indeed for human life. And Kierkegaard is doing that too, but the but it's going to look a little different in his age than it did, you know, in Plato's or in in Socrates's. Uh, and and so for that reason, I think you know part of of what he's trying to do here with the with the novel is to show that there can be a kind of true inwardness, right? A true sense of of the human life as a task that can coexist with the present age right that within these conditions of leveling and of envy and so on if we're aware of them and if if we can with Kierkegaard recover kind of the passionate alternatives um, for thinking and for living then then we can uh take those on as a task and 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 and, uh you know in writing the way he does I think he engages the the reflective people right? To turn that reflection against itself. So maybe someone will say, okay, enough, right? <laughs> and I think, you know, I think Percy is one of those people. And, and, and for him, it took this odd form of becoming, you know, oddly becoming a writer, but to be a writer and to produce a body of art is very, that I think could speak to contemporary concerns and, and can show these same truths is, um, is not the same as simply being a consumer or even being a kind of you know, a scholar, <laughs> right? Yeah, he, um, I, the, when you were talking um, a bit earlier about about Percy, I was thinking of that essay, The Loss of the Creature, mm, and his mm-hmm. contrast there between the, the consumer and I think what he calls the sovereign knower. Mm-hmm. And that seems to have, definitely have echoes of, of Kierkegaard for sure. Um, Matt, let's sort of close out. When, when did you, I know we had uh, the, the a mutual professor in common uh the great mary nichols who was at fordham when i was there and then went on to baylor is where you studied with her is is that where you um first encountered kierkegaard and and maybe say a word about about um you know reading kierkegaard for the first time and and how how that what that was like yeah i had you know maybe the the dubious distinction of being one of the only at that point although this has become a more popular thing to be I, I, I kind of left undergraduate as a convinced Christian Hegelian 
Um, and uh, which is, you know, again, uh, this has become a popular thing. Like people love Hegel and theology departments now. Um, but uh, I, yeah, I kind of uh, was completely persuaded um, coming out of undergrad. And so studying with, with Mary at Baylor, um, I took a class of modern political philosophy and, um, and, you know, she, she included uh, fear and trembling kind of uh, in the syllabus, you know, right after Kahn and Hegel and, uh, and really showed the way that in which he's concerned with the same sorts of, of questions um, as the other kind of great modern political thinkers, which is, you know, not a, not a given and certainly not, uh, you know, Kierkegaard does, doesn't find his way onto many syllabi, I think, of, of modern political philosophy. So for me, Mar Mary Nichols uh, always liked to say, you know, she's from Louisiana and has this wonderful genteel accent. She, I always do this when I, before I do the accent, I explain it. But, uh, but she, she, said, she said to me once, she said, she said, Matt, everybody knows that Mary Nichols has an Aristotle side, but far fewer people are aware of my Kierkegaard side. <laughs> And so she she uh, has this real, I think, kind of affection for for Kierkegaard and um, uh, my own kind of current projects uh, have kind of, you know, I studied, I not only had the wonderful chance to study with Mary, but I also studied Kierkegaard with Steve Evans, who's a, you know, world-class Kierkegaardian at Baylor as well. Um, so I've been in the years, I, I kind of started as a Plato guy and um, in the years since, I've I've kind of drifted over to to Kierkegaard. Yeah, I was struck by uh, we we had a 19th century class and which was which was on um, Hegel, Kierkegaard, and and Nietzsche, and she emphasized. I mean, clearly Kierkegaard was the the kind of uh, star in that in that threesome, and she made tons of connections between Kierkegaard and and Plato, and and would you know make these comparisons between Kierkegaard and and Socrates, and, and once she, she said, uh, she, she would sort of look out at the entire class and, and say, now, uh, if, if, if Kierkegaard and Socrates were having a conversation, if they were talking about philosophy, and then she turned to me one day and looked right at me and said, now, Flag, Kierkegaard and Socrates didn't actually talk. <laughs> this was a, a really surreal moment in the, in the seminar. I felt you feel like you only have to remind me of this fact. I think I think everyone is pretty much aware that they didn't actually talk. But um, I was I was just struck in that class though by by um, the the kind of powerful connections between between Kierkegaard and and uh, and and Plato, and because of the the what you've emphasized about all of the writings being. Um, you know, written under pseudonyms, you know, he, it was just clear to me that he was doing really interesting and, and playful things and taking on these um, personages that you really had to think through before you could claim to have, you know, understood the, the work as a whole. Maybe that's one of the last things I want to ask you about. Um, Two Ages is great um, in a way because it's very, it's very short, it's very digestible, I think. You know, there's some connections, I think, that will occur um, you know, to anyone who who's kind of aware of 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 what's going on in our age, I think it can be pleasurable um, for that reason. But it's it's I would say it's not an easy read, and you know you have to think about some of the the concepts that he uses, like inwardness and leveling. These are not it's not exactly easy or digestible um, right away. But if so, if you were to to sort of suggest to to people where they might start with with Kierkegaard, would you have a favorite, a favorite work of his that, that you would suggest? 
<laughs> I, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I, as perhaps has become clear, I've become kind of obsessed in like the last couple of years with Kierkegaard. I, I, uh, even learned reading Danish, which was, is not easy <laughs> to do. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, you know, if, if somebody is interested, Kierkegaard wrote a series of really kind of lovely, uh, you know, if someone is interested in, in more accessible Kierkegaard, the Christian discourses, um, which are signed in his own name. They're not, uh, they're a series of, of, uh, of sermons, of homilies. He would kind of rewrite, he'd go to the Lutheran cathedral in, uh, in Copenhagen and rewrite the sermons basically uh, to be more orthodox <laughs> after he would listen to them, which is, I admit, a real temptation maybe for a lot of us who are churchgoers. But uh, yeah, the Christian discourses are really um, accessible, lovely meditations on scripture and on the just kind of Christian fundamentals. In terms of the more philosophical stuff, you know, Fear and Trembling is a classic for a reason. Johannes uh, de Silencio's great meditation on the Akeda and the Binding of Isaac um, with special guest appearances from Socrates throughout. That's a wonderful book. My, you know, I got to say my a lot of people really like the sickness unto death, which is all about despair, but I, I, uh, which is by anti-Climacus, but, you know, I'm really taken by, um, by Ioannis Climacus's, uh, philosophical fragments that that's the one that I think is the most important, you know, book that Kierkegaard wrote, because it is essentially, it's about faith and reason, you know, as, you know, Leo Strauss might put it, Athens and Jerusalem. It's about, uh, the question of, uh, modernity. It's about the, um, it's about uh, historicism, I think, to uh, a significantly deeper extent that people really get. Um, and it really is alive, like the way that uh, for Kierkegaard, the answer is Christ. But for Climacus, I really think the, the question is up in the air. Um, and I think that it is a, a remarkable, remarkable distillation of what is the philosophical life like? Um, what kind of a person can pursue that life? What does it do for you? Why would you want to? What does it mean for how you know the truth? And and what it, does it mean to be a Christian? In concluding on Scientific Postscript, which is the, the kind of sequel to Fragments, Climacus says, people have criticized me for making Christianity seem very difficult, he said, but I haven't made it any more difficult. He said, I've, I've endeavored to make it only as difficult as it is. And I think that if we do live in an age where the problem is passion, having the tasks of human life presented to you as worthwhile, as noble, as um, choice-worthy for their own sakes, that that's really powerful. And that Kierkegaard, I think he shows in two ages, understands what our pathologies are. And he, then he designs, you know, these works of these philosophical works of art to speak to our prejudices and, and dislodge them a little bit. And so, so Fragments is the book where I think that most happens, that I think is the, the most successful, maybe as a kind of poetic and philosophical endeavor. Great. So it's called Philosophical Fragments. Excellent. Well, that's that's a really nice way of, of ending our, our episode. I'm grateful for you. Um, to have you come on the podcast and, and talk about uh, this thinker who you are consumed with and who will you be writing a, a book on during your sabbatical. So, so best of luck and, and thanks for coming on the podcast. 
Great. Thanks. Maybe, maybe I'll uh, be able to come back on to uh, promote my, my book. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Kierkegaard's Socratic political philosophy. Awesome. All right. Thanks, man. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Mike. You've been listening to Enduring Interest, a podcast sponsored by the Zephyr Institute. The Zephyr Institute is a community of scholars, students, and professionals committed to gaining a fuller understanding of the human person and the common good. For more information about Zephyr and its programming, go to zephyr.org. That's Z-E-P-H-I-R.org. Please follow Enduring Interest on Twitter, where you can find information about past and future episodes, and message us, please, to recommend guests or books. Our Twitter handle is at the EIPod. That's T-H-E-E-I-P-O-D. Thanks again for listening, and see you next time on Enduring Interest. Um, and <laughs> sorry, I was about to say something about the Taliban, but I, I'm not going to do that either. <laughs> you can we'll, edit that we'll cut that. <laughs> yeah. yeah I mean, I'm a real, Taliban the, the free real, podcast. The, yeah, the, the real movers and shakers. History is still happening in other parts. <laughs> oh. oh no yeah you definitely have to think about it but <laughs> um <laughs> the uh yeah you you uh you relegated um you know beheading to a to be a thing of the past too soon that's not happened yet <laughs> yeah, as soon as i said it <laughs> well i'm not likely to do it anyway um yeah no it, i mean Yeah, our vices are not the vices of the revolutionary age.